Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Thursday night, international best-selling author, Toronto-based Linwood Barkley joins me to talk about his long journey to literary success, how he finds inspiration for his many page turners. We even talk about his favorite thrillers, both on the page and on the screen. HGTV's Scott McGilvery and Brian Baumler reunite to tell me about their new series debuting on March the 5th called Renovation Resort. Four pairs face off with a budget and a tight timeline to transform four cabins and turn an old fishing camp east of Toronto into a top-notch lakeside vacation spot. But first, we hear so much these days about allegations of mishandling of classified documents. But what if it was the whole culture of secrecy and classification that is the real problem here? Historian Matthew Connolly lays out his case in his new book called The Declassification Engine, and he'll do it with us tonight. But first up tonight, we're going to take a really interesting journey into America's cult of secrecy and the whole crisis surrounding the whole system of classification of documents. You'll know that in the past months, whether it was the raid on Mar-a-Lago, whether it's been what's happened with Joe Biden, the current president, former Vice President Mike Pence, there's all this talk about classified documents and where do they end up? Are they being spirited away? What's in them? Is it important? Is it vital national secrets? What is it? It is, of course, a political hot potato, too. Tonight, yet another investigation of documents marked classified, this time discovered at the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. This is President Biden and former President Trump also face investigations over the handling of materials labeled classified. A federal judge has unsealed the FBI search warrant and a list of items removed by agents at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. The unsealed documents show the FBI found 11 sets of classified materials, one of them marked as top secret CI. People know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. This was not just extreme carelessness with classified material, which is still totally disqualifying. This is calculated, deliberate, premeditated misconduct. So you can see, depending on who was found with what material, everyone has a take on this, you know, Uh, definitely throwing stones in glass houses. Not to say that any or all of those investigations aren't completely with merit, but what if we're looking at this whole issue in the wrong way? My next guest says the real problem here is a far larger one that extends well beyond America's borders into what has become the routine practice of designating huge volumes of government material as classified in the first place. Think about it. Emails, PowerPoints, just reams and reams and reams and reams of documents that are now classified top secret or at least classified. Focusing on America, he finds that records are marked as classified three times every second, three times every second, generating so many secret documents, it's practically impossible to make sense of any of it. Now, imagine despite the recognition that the system has been out of control for a long time now, every year in the US, more and more documents are classified as top secret, so much so that 1.3 million Americans now hold top secret clearance, 1.3 million. They need it just so they can get their job done and read the documents they need to actually work. So these latest scandals over where classified material has wound up, what's, you know, what it, what does it mean? What are these documents? Is it nefarious? Is it not? 
It's all exposed a far deeper and broader problem, and that includes here in Canada, with secrecy in general. Joining me now with more on this is Matthew Connolly. He's a professor of international and global history at Columbia University in New York, and he has, with perfect timing, (laughs) just released a book yesterday, as a matter of fact, called The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. Matthew Connolly, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. And congratulations, the book is just out, right? Right in time for Valentine's Day. That's right, Ben. You know, as uh, as someone told me recently, John Stewart, uh, we did an interview. He said, you know, it makes sense. It's about America's love of secrets. <laughs> it and makes think, perfect Great. sense. Exactly. Yes. Now you can give it for Valentine's Day. <laughs> exactly. It makes the perfect Valentine's <laughs> gift for the uh, for the for the secret the top secret fan in your life. Uh, That's right. The ti- the timing couldn't be more prescient, right? I mean, here it is. We've been talking about this a lot of late. Uh, what have you made of all the coverage? When you look at the way this story is being covered, I, I, I think back to you know Hillary Clinton's emails. Something about the coverage must rankle you a bit. You know, every time something like this happens, and they've been happening pretty regularly, we typically hear, you know, these explainer articles and news features where, you know, journalists will talk to people, you know, from the IC, the intelligence community, or people, you know, typically had security clearances, because after all, you think, oh, these are the experts, right? And, you know, it gives you the idea that all this is like so complex and, you know, these people normally they're just so careful. And so for God's sake, I mean, what were they thinking? Putting it next to the Corvette. Um, So, yeah, that part, there's some truth to it, but there is a much bigger story here, which is really about how this system is actually out of control. I mean, it is incredibly complex. But it's so complex that even people on the inside, you know, have trouble, you know, just understanding the the dimensions of it. Yeah, because I think the outsider looks at it and thinks it must operate like a beehive, right? Everybody knows the role. Everybody knows what's going on. Everyone has a role. And yet, when you sort of peek inside it, as I have as a journalist, you realize it's actually chaos, right? I mean, no one really knows just how much is being classified, why Maybe a little history here, because it goes back to a time where, of course, secrecy was paramount. I mean, the intentions are good, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, this system we have now uh, is one that came into being during the Second World War. And like other wars, you know, the United States, which normally in peacetime had a very small military establishment, it had no central intelligence agency. You know, there was nothing like an NSA, even at times when almost every other country had what they call black chambers to intercept communications and decode them. You know, it came into being World War II. What was different this time, though, was that it was never fully dismantled. And, you know, starting with the the nuclear secrets, right, resulting from the Manhattan Project, it began to replicate itself. And so, you know, these so-called special access programs and all the people with original classification authority just multiplied. And pretty soon, you know, large parts of the U.S. federal government, you know, was organized in these compartments, you know, where they would keep their information to themselves. One thing I'll say about it, you know, if you are one of the, you know, we might think of them as worker bees, there are 1.3 million people now have top secret security clearances. So they are trained, you know, there are rules, very elaborate rules in many cases for many different kinds of secrets. But when you get a a perspective, you know, from a somewhat, you know, higher level, you go, for instance, like to the level of the people who oversee all this, they would tell you that they can't even count all of these compartments, they can't even list all the special access programs. So that 1.3 million, 1.3 million people, more people than live in the District of Columbia have top secret security clearances. 
that's an astounding number of people. And I think most of us, when we hear the word top secret, we think Manhattan Project, right? We think nuclear secrets. We think like, wow, really important stuff. But it, it's not yeah. really the case. Typically not. <laughs> and I usually I, I don't want to say this in the first minutes of an interview because, of course, you know, people are interested in secrets. It's because they're dangerous, right? They might explode if exposed to light. And there are secrets like that. I mean, there really are astonishing things that were covered up. I mean, all kinds of things like experimentation with humans, experimentation with cats, you know, with psychics. I mean, really strange things. You know, some of these things known to some extent, some of them known like in Hollywood scripts, but the reality is often even stranger, right, than, than the fictions. So, yeah, I mean, it began with nuclear secrecy, but soon enough, in fact, almost from the beginning, like the very first executive order when it was still in draft form, when Harry Truman was trying to regulate this, one of the criteria they had for something that could be classified as national security information was something that would harm the prestige of the nation. And when it got out, the journalists mocked and ridiculed this idea that government officials had to classify as national security information, something that was unprestigious. So they dropped that. But the reality is like tons of stuff ends up classified just to make sure that somebody doesn't look bad or have to answer the press. Yeah. I mean, I think we think of it as being a few things cloaked and a lot of things in the window. And it turns out to be quite the opposite. It's many things cloaked and not much in that window. Yeah. The default, when you talk to people in government, what they'll say is, you know, they have systems, for example, let's say you're sending a message in a classified system, you know, you need to like select the classification level. And what they'll tell you is the default is always to choose the highest level, make it top secret. Um, because there's no incentive not to. Like nobody, to my knowledge, I, I asked the National Archives, do you know if there's even one case of anyone ever being disciplined for having overclassified information? You know, that is like kept information from the public that we had a right to know. They, they didn't really give me a straight answer. But the more people I asked, the more I realized, I don't think anybody has an example of this. I wouldn't think so. I mean, ultimately, if you're a bureaucrat, you're going to err on the side of caution. It's human nature. Yeah. And, and also, you know, psychologists have studied this. You take random pieces of paper with random words on them. When you stamp some of those pieces of paper top secret, test subjects will tell you that those top secrets are the ones that are really important. That's the useful information. And they've done this experiment, even with people who had security clearances who should know better. Random pieces of paper, you put a stamp on it secret, people pay attention. So this is what's done all the time every day as a signaling device to make more important people think the information is valuable. Matthew, you looked into this, the sheer amount of information that is, I mean, I just imagine a, a gargantuan factory with people with stamps, just stamping documents <laughs> all day long, right? It's not that, but it could be. I mean, there are, the volume is mind boggling. You know, I went into a meeting with uh, a very senior official in something called the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency. These are the people who developed, you know, spy gear and so on, like the most advanced technology. And, you know, I was told, you know, that this was the part of the government that was supposed to be working on technology to accelerate declassification. And you know what they told me? They had no interest. What they were interested in, what they were had been working on was technology to automatically classify information. <laughs> So they were trying to develop like machine learning algorithms that could automatically create new secrets. You mentioned, I think you have a figure of something, was it three documents a second or something that are that are classified? And and everything, right? Emails, PowerPoint presentations, anything you can imagine, the most banal stuff gets gets that special certification. It was 10 years ago, the government reported that there was one intelligence agency that was producing a petabyte 
of classified information every year. Imagine they were like pieces of paper full of classified text. If you put them all in files and file cabinets and line those file cabinets up, they would circle the equator. They might as well just burn all the stuff, right? They might as well just, well, just destroy it. Funny this you rate. should mention that because in fact, that's what's happening. You know, early on, I was interested in how the U.S. government was an early adopter of electronic records. And going all the way back to 1973, the State Department, you know, started putting their diplomatic cables and such in electronic record systems. What was that? I think it was 2006. They finally began to calculate the scale, you know, what it was that the State Department had created over all those years. And they had some 26 million records. And they realized that there was no way that they were going to have the people you know, to review all of them and decide, you know, what was historic and important enough to preserve and what it was that the public would be allowed to know. And so what they decided was they did a quick sample. We'll look at one of these record sets of maybe a million or more diplomatic cables. We'll look at 50 of them and we'll pick them at random. And then what did they do? They didn't actually finish reading the 50. They said, <laughs> ah, we read enough and it didn't seem that interesting. So we're just going to delete all of it. And that's how they ended up deleting all of the records related to, among other things, like international scientific exchanges, everything related to passports and visas. You know, they looked at them and they're like, well, you know, who cares? The visa application. But, you know, as an historian, imagine the research that we could have done on things like global migration if we had that kind of data. Right? Well, yes, yeah, especially in America, where I mean, it really is the world's greatest Petri dish that way, right? Yeah, I mean, it could be. And that's been the American tradition. Um, the U.S. had an amazing tradition of providing free information to the public. Since the American Civil War, the State Department has been creating an official record of American foreign relations and just giving it away. They were doing it almost in real time during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was like more radical than Julian Assange. He wanted our diplomatic <laughs> communications published like months after they were sent supposedly in secret. Yeah, I can't imagine Abe Lincoln holding up at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. But what you, you, <laughs> you've mentioned a number of a number that's staggering about how much money is spent each year in America just working on classification of documents. Is it, it's in the billions, right? The high, yeah, several yeah, billions. The last time, the last time that they were able to guesstimate the total, it was 2017, and the number they came up was all the the money that they end up spending on trying to protect secrets. Is $18.4 billion. And that is 50% more than the budget of the US Treasury Department. Right. That's so, a, like, if this was imagine, you know, Harry Potter, like there's a Ministry of Magic. Imagine America had a Department of Secrets. Yeah. So this would be <laughs> one of our bigger departments and it would be growing rapidly. That was yeah. like double the number from just five years previously. And now they can't even guesstimate the number. And it's not partisan, right? Every administration does its its best to to keep this going. And I mean, uh, there's there's been lots of reporting, and you've done so too, about just how secretive the Obama administration was. Yeah, you know, the peak, it was uh, back in, in 2012. That's when they were classifying information 95 million times a year. And, you know, the, the Obama administration also prosecuted more people for leaking information under the Espionage Act than every previous administration combined. Matthew Connolly is with us. He's a professor of international and global history at Columbia University in New York. He's author of the newly re released The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. It hit bookshelves yesterday, uh, a prescient timing. One looks at the impact of this, Matthew. I think that's what's really interesting. And we hear, oh, you know, they've shared. I mean, WikiLeaks was pretty easy to figure out to some extent. But you hear these cases of people sort of taking classified documents or being found with classified documents like Mar-a-Lago or President Biden 
what are we to make of it? Because from what you describe, who knows what is who knows how important a top secret document actually is. You know, what I would say is like in terms of like how at least some documents go missing, when you think of it like how much information is classified, in a way it's not surprising that at least some of this stuff ends up in strange places when there's so much of it. But the thing that really bothers me, all the talk about, you know, national security and, you know, whether, you know, these documents could kill people, it's the fact that these documents didn't belong to Donald Trump. They didn't belong to Joe Biden or Mike Pence. They belong to the American people. And there's a reason why we have National Archives. It's meant to preserve a record of the past, because especially when you consider, you know, we have 18 different intelligence agencies. You know, we have a Department of Defense that costs more than $800 billion a year. We know there are covert operations, you know, all over the world, targeted killing programs, et cetera, et cetera. At least one would hope that eventually, you know, historians will be able to look back, you know, reconstruct some of the evidence and try to tell the story. And if that's no longer possible, then where's the accountability? Yeah. And, and just looking at it as a Canadian, I mean, when we look at America and the history of the 20th century, so far of the 21st century, so much of what America is involved in really is the history of the planet in many ways. I mean, it is the, some of the most important decisions, the most impactful decisions made around the world in the last hundred years have come out of America. And if there's no record of it, we all suffer. It's not just Americans. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the book, there's a lot of NATO history. There's a lot of Canadian history. I mean, a lot of the history of like the years of the Cold War when the United States was pursuing like overflights over the Soviet Union. I mean, spy balloons. I mean, the U.S. was sending hundreds of balloons, you know, over the Soviet Union and China. And not only that, but, you know, Dwight Eisenhower tried to stop the Air Force and they wouldn't stop. <laughs> From <laughs> sending know? balloons. Yeah, there's there's a story, too, about, you know, the way in which at times the American military has almost been out of control. And, you know, consider like where they're operating at bases all over the world, all over Canada, right? American aircraft and so on. We were jointly meant to be defending approaches to North America, right, from uh, the Soviet Union. You know, this is Canadian history, too. So if that history in the United States is not being preserved, if a lot of it's getting deleted or maybe kept secret and kept secret forever, then it's a world stories, right? I mean, there's, there's global history here that we have to save, and it really matters or it should to everyone. What should we make then of, of the those who've been prosecuted? I mean, I think of Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange, who's still sitting in jail waiting to be extradited. I mean, the penalties are awfully severe for leaking this information. And yet what I mean, I read a lot of WikiLeaks because it involved a lot of the stories that I'd covered over the years, whether it be Afghanistan or, you know, the Middle East and so on. And what was shocking is how much of it was, you know, news reports. And, and you know, someone sitting in an office in, at the American embassy in Cairo compiling Reuters stories about what was going on. It was amazing just how, I mean, there was certainly some sensitive information in there, but it was amazing how routine a lot of it seemed to be. And you think, well, wait a second, you know, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. And yet, who's to tell, right? Right. There are two ways, at least, to look at this one. You know, I like to joke and laugh about this stuff because I feel like, you know, either you laugh or you cry, right? I mean, a lot of it really is tragic. <laughs> So, you know, one thing that many people laugh about is the way, for example, and Hillary Clinton, it's a perfect example, you know, some of the things that they ended up classifying and deciding should have been secret and kept on secure systems. They were, for example, when Hillary would want to print out things that she was sharing, right, with others at the State Department. Now, the serious reason for this, it's not totally ridiculous. It's because, you know, the idea is that if, for example, they concern a covert operation that's not been acknowledged, at least not publicly, like the, the killing of, of people in Pakistan, right, with American drones. So the U.S. has never, or at least at that point, had never acknowledged that program. If they release that document 
the idea is that it would be taken as a tacit acknowledgement, right? The fact that officials were exchanging that information. So why is that a problem? Because then the government of Pakistan has to explain why are they letting a foreign power kill their citizens? <laughs> sure. I mean, within the WikiLeaks uh, releases, you could certainly see where diplomacy comes in, right? Given given the transnational aspect of so much of what America does. But what really surprised me, now that you've brought up Hillary's emails, is this idea that it's kind of like partisan dodgeball, right? Whoever's yeah. in power, if someone's caught with secret documents, whether it be Trump's stuff at Mar-a-Lago or Hillary's emails, it's like the other side gets out the ball and starts to throw, right? That's that's what happens. Yeah, whether it's about the Republican National Committee email or Hillary Clinton's email, you know, the IRS not being able to find their email, or now like with Trump and Biden and Pence and so on. It's as if like they, they change uniforms and then they start playing for the other side, right? And the other side says, oh, this is all, you know, nonsense. It's a big nothing burger. Who cares? None of this stuff was really sensitive anyway. A moment later, they're saying, oh, no, 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 no. This is national security information. It's going to jeopardize the lives of our spies and et cetera, et cetera. So it's gotten to be so often now that we have these seeming scandals, you know, that it's almost like they've, they've lost track and they can't remember which uniform they're wearing. And they're hitting the ball into their own goal. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So if you read the inspector general report, on uh, why it is ultimately she was not indicted. Uh, what they'll say is that, you know, one of the relevant statutes here, almost clearly, it seems like on the face of it, it was clearly illegal, right? Because it, it, under the Federal Records Act, you know, you're not permitted, you know, to to conceal or destroy public records. Hillary Clinton and her lawyers, they took tens of thousands of these emails and they deleted them. And they made it impossible or virtually impossible to recover that data. Who appointed them right, to decide on behalf of the American people what we were allowed to know? So, you know, what bothers me, though, is that in this report, the reason why she was not indicted for that is because no one has ever been charged for the concealment and destruction of, of federal records. And, you know, it's only yeah. stamped secret. That's when you get in trouble. Right. Right. So the government is very determined. They'll send in the FBI. They'll raid a former president's residence if they think they're trying to steal secrets. But as for all these other public records, who cares? Matthew, you raised an interesting point. I mean, technology clearly here has been part of the issue when you're generating millions of emails and departments every single day and PowerPoint presentations and so on. And all of them need to be classified somehow. The volume of information pouring into those uh, classified file cabinets, as you mentioned, must be just, I mean, it is mind boggling. But you think that technology could potentially help to if there's a desire to actually fix this, which is another question. Oh, absolutely. You know, the government is decades behind the private sector. Like there is a multi-billion dollar industry, what they call e-discovery, computer scientists developing tools and platforms so that lawyers can carry out like large scale litigation, right? And in many ways, it's an analogous kind of challenge because, you know, in the U.S. system, like you try to bring a suit, you have this discovery process, right, where you subpoena records. And if we're talking about, you know, big companies, if we're talking about like class action suits, it can sometimes be like hundreds of thousands of records, Right. So what, what do they do? They develop these systems so that they could automatically prioritize those records they think are most likely to be responsive to that subpoena. And then also they use these systems to identify which parts of those records might have to be redacted, 
right? Whether because it has like privileged information, attorney-client privilege, or whether it's about, you know, commercial property, like the formula for Coca-Cola, like they're not going to give that to Pepsi, right? So, <laughs> no. so lawyers have been doing this for a long time, for decades, and they do it on some very weighty and important things. Like these are really big and important suits. So the government, you know, for also a long time, for more than a decade, in fact, there's a broad consensus. This was like the policy of the Obama administration was the U.S. was going to develop technology for declassification. But, you know, as Jill Biden sometimes says, he quotes his father. He says, you know, when people say that they care about something like in this case, oh, we care about public accountability. We care about transparency. We take that seriously. He'd say, no, no, look at the budget. Look at how they spend their money. And then you know what their priorities are. And right. so the 18.4 billion that the US is spending last time we counted, about half of 1% of that, about $100 million is what we're now spending on declassification. 100 yeah. billion of 18 billion. 100 million out of 18.4 billion. We need to be developing comparable, you know, systems that okay, maybe they wouldn't automatically like allow you to release records, but they would at least like make it easier, you know, to find the stuff that yes, really could cause difficulty, maybe even death. But on the other hand, it would also allow you to very quickly identify records that could almost certainly be released quickly and, and safely. So. Yeah, uh, artificial intelligence determining. I mean, th that sounds both, <laughs> it sounds like something out of a science fiction novel you didn't want to come true. But then again, the, the, the existing system seems to have overwhelmed uh, the human mind, so to speak. Well, Ben, let me ask you this. Do you have a spam filter in your email system? I certainly do. Already, you've got algorithms you know, working on the back end sorting through the stuff that you're getting, deciding what it is you actually have to look at. Yeah. And when I look at these spam filters, they get better all the time. So that would be the kind of technology you know, that we could imagine, like sorting through records that could probably be released quickly without harming anyone. Have you tried you know, chat GPT? I have. Large, yeah. yeah, large yeah. language models are really like quite astonishing. What, what I think you know, will be interesting going forward is to see how people begin using them right, to ask questions, right, about, about things that were previously classified. So there's all kinds of applications. And all the technology we're talking about, a lot of this stuff is in its infancy. You know, some of the realms that uh, people do relevant research, like so-called natural language processing or using text, like language as data, some of these tools, like topic modeling, some of these things, they didn't even exist like 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And yet you have to conquer that very human desire to cover one's rear, right? When it comes to yeah. accountability, sort of looking Knowing at a document thinking, yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. Looking at a document thinking, if this got out and it got back to me, I wouldn't look so great. So I'm going to just going to classify this and hopefully no one will ever see it. Yeah. But I'd like to know what is the error rate right now? Uh, you know, I once, for instance, went to a conference where they had people who do Freedom of Information Act review. They had people like heads of departments, uh, FOIA offices. And I asked them, I hear all of you saying that technology can't possibly deal with this problem. It's just too difficult. Have you ever like tested your staff, you know, given them the same records to, to see if they agree among themselves on what could be released and what has to be redacted? And first, they didn't even know what I was asking them. You know, these are smart people. They just hadn't been thinking of it that way. But Finally, when they understood, they said, we can't waste our time on that. We don't have time for that kind of nonsense. If you don't know what the human error rate is, then how do you know what the standard is for what technology has to do to at least meet or even exceed? Yeah, you, you can't manage what you don't measure, right? I mean, that's, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly. sort of the most basic, basic, basic of it all. Uh, yeah. Next time, you know, with this book out there and next time someone sees a story about top secret documents, whether it be in Canada or in the U.S. or elsewhere, what would you like them to stop and think? 
there's so much, right? <laughs> because I mean, the book really, it's about history, but it's also about the future, right? Because we are entering this interesting and potentially dangerous time when, you know, the US government, in some cases, it's a little bit like dementia, you know, like it's it's losing its faculties, its ability to recover even relatively recent and relevant information. On the other hand, you know, we have people on the outside, including people like me, like uh, friendly citizens, right? like trying to do our duty as scholars. And, you know, there could be a kind of arms race where, yes, in government, they could begin using even more technology, create even more secrets. And then on the other hand, there'll be people like us, maybe journalists, too, who are going to be using technology to try to learn everything we legally can. That's the and that I say at the end, like, that's what this book is about. It's in a way, you know, the beginning of that new history that I think is, is going to be really exciting. And maybe a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of those stories, every time we read something about someone walking away with, with documents and it all feels so politicized and, you know, especially with the um, with the polarization in, in politics in so many places now, what would you like people to remember then next time they think, oh, you know, a politician I hate has been caught with X document. Uh, he must be, you know, he must be, he must be wrong. He, there must be something wrong with him. Yeah, the thing to think is uh, it's a little bit like your roommate. They room out and they took some of your stuff. Okay, <laughs> they got to give it back, uh, and they can't pretend it was theirs all along, right? So there is a difference in some of these cases, right? Uh, but I also think people should take it seriously because basically what they're taking with them is our history, right? It's our history, and that matters, right? And yeah. especially matters if you care about holding your government to account. Well, Matthew Connolly, uh, congratulations on the book. The timing is impeccable. And uh, thanks so much for your time and your perspective on this tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm a big fan of thrillers. I'm a big fan of page turners. I mean, if you like to read, there's nothing like a page turner, right? Uh, I was saying earlier in the day that I spent uh, an entire evening where I was supposed to be studying for an important political science exam, reading uh, Robert Ludlum's The Born Identity because it was so good. But, you know, nothing like a good page turner, nothing like a good thriller on the screen as well. And one of the most bankable names in thriller fiction these days happens to call this country home. Toronto-based author Linwood Barkley has now sold, has now written more than 20 books or has 20 books to his name out there. Uh, they've been translated into dozens of languages, sold millions of copies around the world, landing him on bestseller lists, including in the US, the UK, and of course, here at home. But his journey is a remarkable story in of itself. He moved to Canada with his parents from the US in the late 1950s. His father did uh, graphic design and advertising. They then went on to buy a trailer park in Bob Cajun uh, in the Kawarthas, where he worked as a child or worked as a teen. He grew up with dreams of writing detective fiction. He knew from a young age it's what he wanted to do. But it would be decades. It wouldn't be until his mid-40s that he actually hit the big time. And it all came in 2007 with what would become a bestseller called No Time for Goodbye. Here's a snippet of the book's trailer. One night, your entire family disappears. Do you think they were murdered? I don't know. Do you think that they just decided to leave and not take you with them? I don't know. I don't know which would be worse. If they were all dead or... They didn't want me. What I'm wondering is how your family can disappear one night, yet nothing happened to you. After all these years, why won't people believe me? 
Yeah, you get the idea. Really, part of his method is the extraordinary story or the extraordinary extraordinary events happen to ordinary people, right? A very Hitchcockian way of looking at things. Uh, but that book, No Time for Goodbye, uh, No Time for no Time for Goodbye, published back in 2007, was followed by a long line of bestsellers, including The Accident, Trust Your Eyes, No Safe House, Find You First, and his latest is called Look Both Ways. It's published by HarperCollins, and it envisions a world in which automotive technology outpaces our wildest dreams and our darkest nightmares, so to speak. And Linwood Barkley joins me now from Toronto. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's nice to be here. I was reading some fascinating stuff about your upbringing, just uh, moving to Canada uh, with your family, ending up in Bob Cajun, which, of course, is more than just yeah. a great tra tragically hip song that must have had an impact on on what you write, what you see and so forth. Uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, very quickly, my uh, my father was a, a commercial artist. He was an illustrator. So if you were to look at the all the, the ads in Life and Look and Saturday Evening Post magazine in the 50s or whatever, those were all illustrations instead of photography. So there was a very good chance that my dad drew those cars, especially if they were Fords. Uh, in 1959, he was offered a job to join an advertising agency in Toronto. So we moved up here. And as the 60s progressed, my dad was kind of a modern day version of a blacksmith. He was really good at something that nobody wanted anymore because all of the car ads shifted from illustration to photography. So in um, 1966, my parents bought this cottage resort and trailer park south of Bob Cajun called Green Acres. So it kind of completely changed my life. I mean, I managed to still live sort of in the Toronto suburbs most of the time until 68. But that experience of having this cottage or trailer park, I mean, I essentially took over running it at the age of 16 when my father died. He was only 59 and he got lung cancer and it spread all through him. And you know, my mom managed it, of course, but I basically did everything. And so I kind of grew up overnight at the age of 16 and had all this responsibility. But but the other thing is, you know, I didn't even realize this until years later when I wrote a memoir about this period called Last Resort that came out like 20 years ago or more. I didn't occur to me at the time that what I was living through was in any way remotely interesting. You know, I here I was this kid and you know, 16 years old, running this this trailer park cottage place that attracted guests from across Ontario and Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York State. And I just kind of soaked up this incredible cast of characters, like all these people who came up to the trailer park every year. A lot of them would spend the summer there or others who came up at the same time every year for a couple of weeks. And so, you know, for a guy who might someday, or actually even then I wanted to be a writer, but for someone who wanted to be a writer, it was a, a wonderful way to be introduced to a kind of endless succession of oddballs. Yeah, I mean, there have so. been TV shows written about it since, right? That whole idea of the cast of characters that you that you encounter. How yeah. did, you, did, did you always like detective fiction? I mean, when I was growing up, I loved the Hardy Boys as a young Same. boy. Love the Hardy Boys. And of course, they were written by by a Canadian, at least the first several dozen or the first couple of dozen. But was that did you know from sort of get go that that was uh, was that were those your early books? Yeah, I think the first books I really devoured pretty seriously were the Hardy Boys. And then somewhere around grade six or somewhere, I think I kind of graduated to Agatha Christie right. and, the, and the Nero Wolfe novels by Rex Stout. Yeah. And so I started reading all of those like crazy. And then when I was a little older than that, I think it was 
know, I discovered Donald Hamilton's Matt Helm novels, which, you know, don't even talk about the Dean Martin movies, but, but those were sort of gritty spy novels. And I was reading James Bond. And so I was really writing stories probably around the time I was in grade six, like grade five or grade six, I started writing stories. And I would love to say that it was, you know, great literature that inspired me, but it was really television. I had favorite shows, in particular, The Man from Uncle and Mannix and Mission Impossible. And an episode a week wasn't enough for me. So I had to do what today we would call fan fiction. I would write 30, 40 page type novellas based on my favorite shows. So I remember my, you know, it was hard to write all the things that longhand. And it was around probably when I was around 11. I asked my dad to teach me how to type and had this royal, this metal royal manual typewriter that I used to would say weighed about the same as a Volkswagen. And and I, he just he gave me this five minute lesson. He said, here's where the fingers go. These fingers rest here. This finger hits this key. This finger hits that key. There's your lesson. Go to it. And I started typing. And so from, you know, grade 11, from age 11, I was pecking away like crazy, banging out these stories. Yeah, I, I remember being inspired. I think, I can't remember what it was. I think my parents, my dad was a big detective novel guy. So he would pass on, when I got a little older, things like Robert B. Parker, John D. McDonald, yeah. the Swedish couple, uh, Walu and um, Sojwal and Walu, I'm not going to pronounce yeah. their name properly. Laughing policeman. Exactly. All of those. Yeah. And, and I tried to write something about the same age as you, but I was, I, I didn't have the pages. I think I it was called Murder on the 13th Floor. And I think it was about a page long. <laughs> So that was it. That was it. But you kept at it, right? I mean, you went to school to study literature as well. Um, well, like, you with... know, I went, I, I, you know, I mean, I was writing, I was writing stories all through high school and writing, you know, more, more novellas inspired by TV. And one of the people who came to our, our cottage resort every year was a guy named Lou Canelio, who was, a, I think about that time, retired, an actual honest to God private detective from outside of Buffalo who I became really good friends with. I think when I was my early university years, I wrote a couple of novels based on a character, you know, character based on him. And you know, I went to Trent University in Peterborough. And, and I mean, I went in thinking I'd maybe get a political science degree, but I switched to, to English and read the Coles notes on some of the greatest classics ever written. Yeah. And so I always regretted when when university was over that I hadn't actually read most of the books I was assigned to read. I just sort of skimmed through them the night before. Oh, is... man. You know, you know, you'd think that that someone who writes novels and makes a living this way, I mean, I would have an appreciation for for Shakespeare. I could never get into it. I just couldn't get past the language, and they would give us all these incredibly dreary things to read. And uh, and that's even then, at the age of like nineteen or whatever, I'd be reading something in the afternoon for some course, and I couldn't stay awake. And I've that's a habit that has stayed with me. I think I read I read all of the Bourne I, the Bourne's Robert Ludlum's Bourne series while I was supposed to be studying for political science degree at, Mag <laughs> at McGill. You know, it's, yes. it's well, and actually, you know, and, and around the time that I started going to university was when I became absolutely obsessed with the Lou Archer novels by Ross MacDonald and just read every last one of them. And to the point that when I was in my final year, I did a thesis on the detective as a kind of iconic figure in literature, focusing more than on anything else than on the Lou Archer books. Linwood Barkley, the best-selling author, is with us this hour. He is uh, His latest book is called Look Both Ways. He has another book coming out in May. We'll talk about that as well. But going back to sort of, I mean, like so many authors, uh, future authors, you wound up in print. I was reading earlier that uh, the Canadian who wrote uh, Charles Leslie McFarlane, who wrote the Hardy Boy books, he ended up in, he was a journalist. You ended up in newspapers as well. What encouraged you to go that way? And I guess you were you continued writing throughout. 
Yeah, well, you know, I was writing, I mean, I was writing novels when I was in university. And so my plan was I would I would graduate university and just become a best-selling novelist. And I guess the only problem with that was that, you know, the books were terrible and nobody wanted to publish me. Uh, so I thought, well, where can a guy get paid money to write every day? And so I applied and got a job at, at a reasonably small daily, the Peterborough Examiner. And and that's exactly what I did. I got to write every single day. And so that's what that's kind of what sent me into newspapers. And you know, newspapers are a great place to work because they're like it's like having a crash course in the world. Because one day you're covering covering a plane crash, and the next day you're covering city council, and the next day you're interviewing some country western star, and you just do everything. And so I spent a couple of years at the Peterborough Examiner, and then I went to work for a kind of suburban uh, paper outside of Toronto. And then in 1981, I joined the Toronto Star, and I went in there hoping to get a reporting job. And they said, well, we got lots of reporters. What we're really desperate for are copy editors. Do you have a lot of editing experience? And I said, sure. Why not? You know, which, which was not, not really true. And so I got hired on as an editor, and I was actually pretty good at it. And I was editing, you know, various capacities and on the news desk and all these sorts of things and for uh, for the next 12 years until uh, 1993, when an opportunity came up to actually get back to writing, which was to write a three time a week a humor column, allegedly a humor column. I, I was so, good, actually. It was good. I remember it. And editing, learning how to edit is such an important I mean, it's it's not glamorous, but what is more important than learning how to edit work? Well, and it's and it can be in a newspaper. It can be exciting if you can believe it. I mean, to work on a city desk, work on the news desk, and you've and you're and you you come in at three in the afternoon, and you've got 150 stories from all over the world in the city, and you've got this many pages, and you've got all these photographs, and you're sort of, and you all these empty pages, and you're told you've got six hours build a newspaper and. It's, it was fun. And then you would, you know, you would spend five and a half hours completely building the newspaper and then a jet would crash and you would throw out everything you'd done for the last five hours and do it all over again in 30 minutes. Aside from being able to write books, that was, I think, the most fun I ha ever had in journalism was working on the desk at night when you just never knew what was going to happen. Yeah, it, it kind of like how your books are structured, which which is interesting <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, tell me about about the breakthrough because I know that it, that that it came. I mean, you were in your mid forties, and all of a yeah. sudden, um, there's a breakthrough book. I got a no no time for goodbye. And and right. what what was that like? Well, it was pretty surreal. I mean, I had I I had done a, a, some while I was doing the column. I did a memoir and I wrote some humor books. I did a book of columns and I did a book making fun of a former Ontario premier named Mike Harris. And then I started writing novels and I had, and I had published by Bantam books in the U S four sort of comic thrillers that collectively sold, you know, in the high two figures, I think. And so my agent said, you know, we need to switch gears, do a serious thriller, a big book. And I came up with this idea for a book that became no time for goodbye. And that book kind of went insane. I mean, it 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 became a massive bestseller in Germany in translation, even before it had come out in English. And then in 2008, it was selected by something called the Richard and Judy Book Club in England, which sort of like getting picked as an Oprah book. And in, and in 2008, that became the single bestselling novel of the year in the UK. And so it just went supernova. 
And it was just, it was kind of surreal. And it was, and I thought, you know, it's just possible that I could give up the day job and stop writing columns. And and my wife and I would go for these long walks where I would debate whether to quit newspapers. And I thought, who quits a job with a dental plan? You know, that was the big thing. Like, and my wife said, I think I, I think we can get you a dental plan somewhere. So, but it did change my life. Like, I mean, not, the idea for No Time for Goodbye came to me at five o'clock in the morning. It was just there. And I could never have known at that moment that that idea that came to me would completely change my life, which it did. So I'm always grateful for these ideas that just come out of the ether, come from nowhere. I was really interested to hear how you come up with ideas because it seemed so familiar to me as well. Because when I'm looking for ideas for this show, I, I leave through everything, right? Your newspapers, magazines, little snippets here and there, tidbits, and you sort of store them away thinking, hmm, that could be a good idea one day. When you sit down to write to write books, where, where do you find the inspiration for me? You know, look both ways, is, and I'll let you describe what it's about. Uh, feels very current. Well, look both ways. Is, look both ways is very much a kind of a departure for me because all the others have been I would call sort of straightforward thrillers about ordinary people getting caught up in extraordinary circumstances. Look both ways is a it gears a little bit closer to sci-fi or or perhaps I describe look both ways as think Jurassic Park, but instead of dinosaurs, it's self-driving cars. And this is an island. This is an island community, kind of like a Martha's Vineyard, where a big car company comes in and says, "Look, the best way to test self-driving vehicles, autonomous cars, is if every car on the road is one, because they're like a hive mind. They all talk to each other. They know where each other is on the road. So they make a deal with everybody to surrender their conventional vehicles to the mainland for a month, and everyone is given one of these autonomous vehicles for, to use." And on the big day of the media event to talk about how this has worked so brilliantly, this brave new world that we're coming into, uh, a virus gets introduced into the system and the cars all essentially become homicidal. I'm not quite sure where the idea originally came from. I mean, I mean, I've always been kind of a car nut because I was immersed in car imagery because of what my dad had done for a living. And I've always loved cars and the notion of completely surrendering control, you know, when you're driving to, to this thing, you know, and it's like an elaborate bus, I guess, you know, but I just, I'm not looking forward to this world. And I thought, well, I wonder how that could go horribly wrong. And it's funny, even just before I came on talking to you, there was a story on CNN about how they are, there's this massive recall of Tesla's because of uh, the self-driving feature is erratic and not working properly. You know, so that's what that was about. And, it's, and as I say, it's kind of a, a little bit out of my lane, no pun intended, that novel. But it was just a blast to write. I had so much fun doing it. Yeah, and and I you, you wrote it a while back, right? It wasn't it, it wasn't released uh, after it was written. It was it was held on to for a little bit. I wrote it at least three and a half years ago, pre-pandemic. I had done it. I'd actually thought about doing it as a screenplay, an original screenplay at one point, and I wrote it that way and then decided, no, you know, I've dipped my toe into that whole world and you can spend years working on something that never happens. And I thought, I should just write as a book. And my publishers all really liked it, but they weren't quite sure what to do with it because it was different than what I typically do. But we finally did get it out. So it's there and, you know, I couldn't be. And the great thing about it is, is that if you get a you know a print edition actually of this novel, one of my father's illustrations that he did is graces the title page of the novel, which is this beautiful airbrushed rendering of a 1959 Cadillac, which might not seem appropriate for a book about self-driving cars, but when you read the novel, you'll find out it's, it's completely appropriate. 
Yeah, I mean, I had the ebook of it, so I didn't get to see the image, and now it makes ah, com- yeah. complete sense. No, that's what what a great what a great way to pay tribute to to that era. I mean, I loved the cars from that time. I mean, you know, they, through the fifties, they went through this whole thing with fins on cars, and the fins were never more outrageous or garish than they were on the nineteen fifty nine Cadillac. Which had this monstrous fin that came to this immense point at the top. And to give you an idea what a nerdy kid I was, even in grade seven, I read Ralph Nader's book about the auto industry called Unsafe at Any Speed. Right. I, that, still, I, yes. still remember this, I still remember to this day reading that, that book and recalling that motorcyclists were impaled on the back of Cadillac fins. That image stayed with me for the next 55 years or so. And I thought, that'll come in handy one day. One day, one day. We won't give any of this. We won't give any of this away. It all happens in one day. So the momentum. Yeah, I mean, it pretty much. Very, you could, you, it reads like like a movie to some extent. Yeah. I mean, it just bolts along. How do you develop characters when you're moving that fast? It must be because you do. I mean, there's a character named Bruce who owns said Cadillac. We won't go any further with that. But there's lots of the and the the cars are characters too, which is an interesting yeah. way of doing it. Character is an interesting thing because plot is is one of the things that I spend more time thinking about. How can I make all of this come together? You know, because a, a well-crafted thriller is, is you know, it's kind of like a Swiss watch. All the pieces need to go together. And But character is something that I just, I don't think about it consciously. I just have a sense of who these people are when I start writing them. And that comes together for me quite quickly. And my dad used to play piano by ear. He couldn't read music. And I think characters are like that for me. I kind of just, they just kind of happen. Do they evolve as the book goes on? Do they change from what you set out to have them to be as you as that, you write? That can happen. Now, I just finished last week writing the the first draft that I'll give to my publishers of the book that would come out in 2024, next year's book. And as I was writing it, there was at least one character, one or two characters in it that I thought, I wanted to give them more shading. As they got, as I got further into the book, they became more important to the plot. And I thought, oh yeah, when I go through this again, I need to spend just a little more time tweaking those characters because they just ended up becoming more important to the story. Do you write the books from beginning to end? I used to work with a reporter who wrote from back to front because he said, if you know where you're going, you know where to start. That was always his, yeah, that's, his line. That's yeah, I don't, I don't. That's like driving down down the main highway backwards. I mean, I don't think I could do that. I do know. I think I. I think I recall hearing from Michael Connolly that he writes his last chapter first, and I know where I want to end up. You know, like they always talk about in writing fiction: Are you a plotter or a pantser? Do you plot it all out, or do you go by the seat of your pants? And I fall kind of in the middle. I know the big picture, but just like if you get in a, in a car in New York and want to drive to L.A., you know where you're going, but you have a hundred ways to get there. And so I often don't see the opportunities that exist in the book until I get well into it, and I think, oh, wait a minute, I could do this, I could do that. You have some big fans out there. I was uh, Stephen King's a huge fan of your work. That must have been, I mean, I remember at that same age we were talking about sort of finding things that were more older than the Hardy Boys. I remember reading Carrie and being blown oh, yeah. away by it. You know, just being blown away by his ability to build stories. He's really a genius. And the thing is, what's really strikes me about Stephen King is that he's really at, at reached a stage in his career where he could coast. You know, he could just mail it in, but. He's still turning out really ambitious, terrific books. I, as you say, I had I was stunned when I found out he was a fan, and we've kind of become friends since. And he kindly sent to me. He has a book coming out in September 
called Holly, which he sent me an advanced copy of, which I finished reading last week. And I think this is a book that's just so rich and got so much going on. And so, I mean, my introduction was Carrie with him, but in the theaters. My wife and I, before we got married, had gone to see Carrie in a theater. Wow. And, and, <laughs> not a, not and, a date movie, but yeah. Oh, man. And it's just like, if there is there any movie that has a bigger jolt in the last 15 seconds than that movie? And so that was my introduction to King. And then, of course, I started reading. And so if you had told me back in, you know, 1977 or whenever it was that I would one day be have, have this fellow as an admirer and the way I would know him, I would just think that seems highly unlikely. I mean, as as a writer, how tough is it to, I mean, coast is probably the wrong word, because I don't think anybody coasts, right, ever. But how easy is it to fall into sort of ruts when, when you're trying to write at a fairly quick pace, come up with good ideas, and try to make sure that the, the next book is as good as the last one, right? That's always the challenge. You're well, only as good as your next book. Right? That's That's so true. And that is the challenge. And I mean, I think that you know, I think that we all know, I know of writers that I really loved it, that are, that do coast, that have just stopped trying, they just sort of mail it in. And we, you know, we know who they are and we think, eh, you know, we saw, I mean, a lot of them we start reading. But the challenge is to, is when I do a book every year, is to give people who enjoy my books, give them what they expect, but at the same time, not give them what I gave them before. And try to come up with some sort of plot that is different enough and has a new twist, something about it that's different, but do it in the style of the ones that have come before it. And that's the challenge. It really is. Yeah, I always thought of sort of the Alfred Hitchcock model, right? He always managed to make interesting movies over the years. The, the later ones weren't quite as good, but they were still very good. And I mean, my two favorite movies of all time are Rear Window and Vertigo. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and in fact, Trust Your Eyes, which is a novel I did about almost ten years ago, is very much a kind of homage to Rear Window. And I think, to some degree, my novel A Noise Downstairs is a bit of one to Vertigo. And I mean, he made some movies that I think are just not very good at all, but some of his great ones are among the best thrillers ever made. Oh, what about uh, how do you see yourself? I mean, you, you're obviously still writing a lot. Are you still able? You're still finding things that that really interest you that you think need to be talked about? Because I thought about that reading the the latest novel, Look Both Ways. I mean, there is commentary in there, right? There is there is not just a novel and a, and an adventure to read. There's also sort of there's a cautionary tale in there being woven through it. Uh, do you still look out around the world and think the other I, things you want to talk about? I think that, well, first and foremost, you know, I want to write a thriller, but, you know, we all have access to grind. And I can often find a way to maybe somewhere in a book to to find the, to pick an axe and grind away at it. I mean, the book that will come out next year, I mean, there are aspects of that novel that are about banning books in schools. And that's not what the whole book is about by any means, but it's a way for me to kind of let off some steam about something that angers me. I've had previous novels in which I've talked about the decline in newspapers, and which is a subject that is, you know, worries me a great deal. So, you know, you find ways to kind of weave in things that really make your teeth grind at night. Yeah, I, I know this comes up for Canadian readers sometimes. Your books are set in the States, right? Yeah. Have you ever thought of setting one, just, just a one-off in Canada? I have. You know, I it was, it's the, actually the four funny thrillers that I wrote, um, the first four novels about a character named Zach Walker. Although it's rather vague about where they are set. To me, they're set in between sort of Oakville and Toronto um, is where those are set. 
And I, and you know, sometimes people think, well, you should be writing books set in Canada. And when I started out in this whole game and started writing thrillers, I could get a Canadian publisher. And I could yeah. get a, but I had a U.S. publisher who was very interested in publishing me. And it was kind of, well, you dance with the one what brung you. And, and I mean, I have, I have had since wonderful Canadian publishers and been very supportive and terrific. But it was tougher when I was started. You know, if you weren't writing literary fiction, it was hard to get anyone north of the border really interested. Yeah, uh, that, that seems to have changed. I mean, I remember in the 80s, there were very yeah. few uh, Canadian detective novelists or thriller novelists that you could point to and say, you know, they're up there with the greats or with the yeah. greats of their day. Now you can't. That's right. I mean, look, at you, you know, I think that it's it, to some degree that it's always you always struggle for a little of acceptance here. I mean, if anybody probably deserves to get nominated for a Giller or somebody, it would be Louise Penny. But, yeah. you know, I always say that's the one night of the year I don't have to rent a tux. <laughs> But the good thing about it, too, I mean, you had Ross McDonald, right, who who would yeah. inspire you. And now you you and others may inspire a whole new generation of 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 writers to to take a shot at it. Right. Well, who knows? You know, and I mean, Ross McDonald was not only my uh, favorite writer. He was he something called mentor. I mean, when I was doing that thesis at Trent, I wrote to him and he wrote back and we had a, a long correspondence that culminated with when he was up in Canada. He invited me to dinner with him. And I mean. You know, if you can imagine, for me, my heroes, you know, I couldn't imagine anybody in the world I would rather have dinner with would then would be Ross McDonald. Be like any other kid thinking that they could have dinner with Wayne Gretzky or something. And you, you learn that this community of writers, there are a lot of very wonderful, generous, kind people working in this in this biz. People who write just dastardly, evil, blood-curdling things happen to be some of the nicest people you could meet. Funny how that works. Yeah, it's very straight. <laughs> Ludwig Barkley, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. Thanks so much. Imagine combining the challenges of a home renovation show with the competition of an adventure reality show. Well, that's essentially the premise behind a new seven-part series called Renovation Resort, making its debut on March 5th on HGTV. It features two of the biggest names out there to oversee the whole thing. Real estate investor, contractor, and entrepreneur Scott McGilvray's shows you'll be familiar with, including Scott's Vacation House Rules, Moving the McGilvray's, Buyer's Boot Camp, and the award-winning show Income Property. While Brian Baumler owns Baumler Quality Construction, he's host of shows such as Brian, Brian Inc., House of Brian, Leave it to Brian, and Disaster DIY. Now they're inviting four contractors. They're not going to do the work themselves. They're going to invite four contractors and designer, the designer duos, essentially, uh, two from each Canada and the U.S., to a lakefront property east of Toronto, a former fishing camp that has seen much better days, to turn four cabins into top-notch vacation rentals. There's a budget. There's a timeline. Here's a snippet. Welcome to Renovation Resort. <laughs> this is the ultimate renovation competition. Behind you are four cabins with identical layouts, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a kitchen, living and dining space, a loft space, tons of outdoor area to work with, and a beautiful waterfront. In seven short weeks from now, we will be hitting the peak rental season, and these cabins need to be ready. Each week, you'll face a new challenge. You'll be tasked with renovating a new space, and we will be the judges. We'll be joined by some expert guest judges along the way. Now, throughout the competition, Brian and I will be checking in regularly to evaluate your work. 
For every space, we will have the same judging criteria. Quality, creativity, and functionality. Each team will have an identical budget of $100,000. But it's up to you to allocate where you spend that money. At the end of the competition, the team that creates the best cabin will not only have the bragging rights as the renovation resort champions, but you will also receive a game-changing prize of $100,000. There you go, a renovation resort in a nutshell. Joining me now to tell us all about uh, the show and what it was like to make it are Scott McGilvery and Brian Bowmler. Uh, thanks so much for your time, both of you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is a this is a great one because it opens and you see the property. And if you grew up in this country, you're like, I recognize that. I recognize those cabins, especially the original ones, because I'm sure I, my parent, my dad, maybe stayed something just like that many years, many years ago with the no running water. Canadiana. Yeah, it's yeah, very Canadiana cabin cottage uh, camp, the, whatever you called it. Most uh, most people that grew up in you know the northern parts of this country have seen something like that before, for sure. Yeah, tell me about it though. Where is it exactly? So uh, basically, it's just east of Toronto in the Peterborough area on the Trent Lakes. So it's a it's a beautiful piece of waterfront. It was a great property. Um, originally, it had been a logging camp, and then it became like a fishing camp uh, about eighty years ago. Um, but it's the original cabin. Some of those cabins were a hundred years old and literally you'd walk in and there's like rocks, like boulders sticking up out of the ground that have frost, the frost has heaved them. We and tripped over we one tripped inside over the cabin. No, <laughs> no structural foundations, no real plumbing or sewage control. So it was get, it was about time. Yeah. Yeah. As I was mentioning, I think I stayed at a cabin just like that. Not that long ago. <laughs> With my dad, like back in the 80s, probably, but uh, the 1980s, the 1980s. So the concept of this, I mean, just so listeners understand, those those cabins, those cabins are done away with pretty quickly. Yeah, the two of you get to that uh, as job one. Yeah, well, the, I purchased this resort several years ago with the, the intention to update it because it's such a beautiful spot, so much history, but the, the cabin's really almost uninhabitable. And then Brian and I were chatting about, you know, the idea of doing a competition show and setting the stage for new talent to come to the network and showcase their skills. You know, Brian and I compare messages and comments on our social media. And it's like, there's so many people here that claim to have the skills. Why don't we, why don't we cast all across North America? We'll bring in some, you know, renovator, contractor, designer teams. See what they've got. Yeah. And we'll, we'll set up, we'll set this place up and maybe we'll get some new ideas out of it as well. And it turned into this really organic process of, I've got this resort, we're going to rebuild it, but let's bring in some uh, some talent from, you know, the US and Canada and have them compete against each other. A bit of an experiment, really, especially yeah. the part where Brian and I had to live there together. Oh, did you have to do you actually have to stay, spend your time there together? You get along really well on screen, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, we we both lived in trailers in the parking lot down by the river. You've only seen episode 1. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the Christmas reel. <laughs> I'll look forward to the outtakes on HGTV. Yeah. They always they publish those up, you know, you get to watch the outtakes afterwards or or your most contra- your you know, the moments where you have friction. Uh, Brian, you you walked right into this and said this is a big job. I mean, not not so anyone's fooled. The property's beautiful, but it was a complete it was starting from scratch essentially. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, for us in that, you know, that that's almost the 
the the easiest way to start is to start over. Um, for the competitors that came in and their their teams of you know design build teams, this was the entire cabin inside outside landscaping. Uh, so for them to come in and in seven weeks, you know, complete these things from the ground up was was a challenge and and we got to see them go through what we've been through in the past you know filming production trying to get the construction done in a schedule you've got challenges you've got timelines you've got a budget uh you know we watched four teams you know hit rock bottom and realize this isn't as easy as it looks and and it was great to watch that and watch them come back and bounce back even stronger from that yeah, as I imagine for those who've never actually had to do this under the circumstances that you both do regularly, it, it, there's a lot going on that you don't see. I mean, the, the, the renovation work itself, the design, all that looks stressful. But the whole idea of doing it on a time limit with 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 the cameras rolling, it, it adds a whole new level to it that most people will have no concept of. Yeah, their their production and construction are are two very angry, you know, sharp clawed animals that don't live in the same cage well together. But we've somehow managed to keep them in there for, uh, you know, almost two decades at this point. I don't know how. <laughs> so, so, Scott, the challenge here, I mean, to go just back to the premise, is bringing in the four couples. Uh, what are they tasked with doing? Uh, what are they exactly are they tasked with with doing from the get go? Well, Brian and I get the shells, the foundations, the structure, the structures in place. Once the the teams were cast, they were basically just told, look, you're going to be renovating a vacation property. It's got three bedrooms, two bathrooms, kitchen, living, dining, all those types of things. Start gathering your ideas, pack your bags, and uh, you'll be working on this this place sort of room by room, week by week. So when the competitors arrived literally on camera you see them seeing the the property for the first time on that day we give them their first challenge uh, and every week they have to sometimes do multiple rooms in order to be completed the entire cottage inside and out from waterfront to driveway by the end of the seven week uh run just so listeners know these aren't folks who have no experience at this right all each couple uh, each pair that you brought in had building and design experience they do, but from different backgrounds. Like some are build, some of them are a builder designer duo. Others um, have just, you know, they've worked together. Some are just friends. Others are, you know, um, sort of DIY influencers online with large followings. You, you get a little bit of everybody who's got at least some credibility in the space, but not necessarily all the designations. It actually made it very interesting and and kind of raw because. Everyone was given the same budget. There's $100,000 up for grabs, which is a big deal. That's a life-changing prize for a lot of folks. Um, and these these guys all want to do this for a living. So this is their opportunity to showcase their talents and maybe get a new start. Yeah, and you, the two of the couples are Canadian, not, not to turn this into some kind of competition this way, but two of the couples are Canadian and two of the couples are the pairs, I should say, because they're not couples in the natural sense of the word all, but two of the pairs are Canadian, two of the pairs are American. That's yep. right. That's yep. right. We got Chicago, Arizona, uh, Arizona, Toronto, Brampton. Some really so. different styles that came in too. And that was that was one of the fun things to just watch, you know, uh, regional influences in design and and how they build and and even, you know, some of them cultural. And it was just amazing watching uh, these things take shape. And and I think we couldn't have had four more different cabins come out of this. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of those great scenes in the opener, I think it's the couple from Chicago, April and Arnold, who confess never having to never having seen a cabin like this before and sort of having to figure out the whole concept from the get go. 
It didn't take them long to uh, to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they quickly. Really interested, even in the first episode, just how different each of those cabins looked right off the bat, given these four different pairs. Yeah, it was it was a shock to Brian and I as well. But that you know what? That's kind of the magic of having things happen organically. There's no script here. There's no host of the show. It's literally these teams freestyling their way through this. I mean, they all have a bit of a plan, but it's they're unsupervised in terms of what they what they're doing. And then Brian and I there just trying to keep up with the four different teams, offer mentoring where we can, but judging where needed in order to make sure that they get feedback, right? It's it's critical that they get feedback on everything that they're doing so that they can make pivots, but it's very stressful as well. Like I've never seen, never been involved in a show where the real moments got so intense and it all comes through in the show. Yeah. And they're working on a budget too. And even uh, in the early days, they have to factor that in, right? You can't go whole hog and then leave yourself with nothing to do the rest of the place with. No, Although that does happen. Yeah, but that's part of the, you know, I think one of the things that audiences have really connected with, you know, in shows that Scott and I do, this is not a unlimited budget, you know, dream, uh, pipe dream thing. This is this is what real people, you know, deal with this. In in this case, these are rental vacation properties. There is a, a, a budget that has to be done. They have to deal with that. They have to deal with the timelines to make a certain season. So this is this is really bringing a lot of reality out. And I think for the teams and the contestants, they started to see, you know, this is what these guys deal with. Uh, and it, it's a lot more stressful than it looks in between those commercials. Yeah, I forgot about the timeline because they're, you, you announced the timeline. You want to be open for the season, right? So they're working on a budget and a timeline. Right, right. And the goal is that these these properties are going to be available to the general public. So time is a ticking and uh, they're very, pretty much just about ready to go for people to start in hopefully enjoying them. The way the property has been enjoyed for 80 years, but in a new, more modern, high-end fashion. Now, I know both of you have been through this process many times in the past. What about this one surprised you? You mentioned a bit of it already, just the dynamics of having these four couples who have some experience but not doing this. Uh, what were some of the surprises? Well, I think, first of all, was to see the surprise was just <laughs> watching each team try to get through these challenges, but seeing the the true stress of the process come out. I was surprised at how well they held it together because I knew, I knew it was going to be difficult. Um, I was surprised at how quickly some of the, like how quickly the tables turned. So you want like the first, at the beginning, the first challenge, I was like, wow, okay, here we go. This, this team here is clearly, they're going to be the strong ones. They're going to win. And then by the third challenge i'm like well i had that all wrong now the underdog has kind of taken the lead i think we also underestimated the skill you know of, of the the competitors coming there on, on day one we kind of said well this this will be interesting but it, it very very quickly they elevated everything the the design was amazing the the quality of work was incredible they were putting the the hours in and putting in the hard work and i think that just you know, that blew us away from day one. And we realized this this isn't going to be a walk in the park for us where there's a clear, clear winner. Every single team has has come here to compete and come here to win. I was impressed with their confidence, just even on day one, just how confident they were. They all seemed to have a clear idea of what they wanted to do and how to do it. Yeah, there was a lot of confidence in that lineup. Sometimes too much confidence. Almost as, as much confidence as there was in the judges. <laughs> <laughs> and you two, I mean, you, you're, you're here together today again. Obviously, you, you survived another series. Congratulations. 
Just we barely. Yeah, we're contractually obligated to spend time together today. <laughs> <laughs> you still have a good time. I mean, you, you can't. I mean, I watched, you know, obviously been in TV, watch a lot of TV. You can't fake that, you know? No, you can't fake the chemistry. And, and uh, yeah, there's certainly some chemistry here. we'll leave it there Uh, Scott and Brian thank you so much thanks for having us thank you very much a series of billboards put up about Canada are uh, getting some reaction in a town where there's a lot of noise to cut through it's hard to get people to to raise their eyes or to take notice of something in LA, of course. So it'll come as no surprise to anyone who's been to the States. Any Canadian knows that Americans generally think, you know, we're pretty polite, humble types. We don't like to talk too loud or sing our own praises too loudly. So uh, these new series of billboards uh, take a bit of a unique approach. Well, they take a unique approach to Canada's, to make Canada's presence felt in Hollywood. It's all part of something called the Made Better campaign, and it features slogans like this one. And this is written on a billboard right in Hollywood. (laughs) Politely kicking ass. Sorry. See? It's in your face, and it's Canadian all at once. Another one references top Canadian directors such as Sarah Sarah Pauly, Denis Villeneuve, Domi Chou, and James Cameron, titled The Direction, Look North. Here is one of the ads, the campaigns that's online. It's a whole multifaceted campaign. Here's one of the online campaigns about the pure talent that exists in Canadian comedy. Well, pitter-patter, let's get at her. Canadians, the fastest rising stars in comedy. I am comedy struck and starstruck. Telling Canadian stories for real people. Incredible. You're the first female to direct a Pixar movie. The first Muslim superhero. The first project with all Indigenous creatives at the helm. And the award goes to... We are a country of accomplishment. The impact that Canadians can make on the entire world. Like, it is awesome. It's about more than just comedy. <laughs> I did watch the whole thing. It's really about celebrating all that Canada has become in the, you know, film and streaming business. We've done lots of good works of late. So why are we why are we deciding to toot our own horn in Tinseltown these days? And who is behind the campaign? Well, joining me now to talk more about it is Valerie Creighton. She's president and CEO of the Canadian Media Fund. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you, Ben. Looking forward to it. Yeah, this is a bold idea. I mean, this it's hard to hard to get noticed in 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 LA with so much going on, and yet here we are. These have been these have been noticed. It's great. Yeah, well, anytime you say something like politely kicking ass, I think it gets people's attention. That's for sure. But then we added the word sorry after because you know that's how we are as Canadians. Yeah, you don't want to you don't you don't want to throw them off kilter too much without the usual politeness at the end. There. Exactly. Where, where did this idea come from? Well, you know, I think it's it's a really interesting question. And, you know, we have such phenomenal talent in our country and we're we're kind of shy about it. It was interesting. I interviewed Graham Mason from Screen Australia during a recent industry event. And Australia has been so great at claiming their own. You know, they consider Nicole Kidman as Australian and Chris, you know, all those great stars. And yet in Canada, we often have a tendency once our talent moves to L.A., we kind of say, oh, well, they're in L.A., but we're getting we're claiming them back. And, you know, with what's been happening in Canada lately in terms of our extraordinary content, especially in our indigenous and our black and people of color community, 
We've got shows that are cleaning up all over the world, sort of, won a huge award at MIP for diversity, transplant, Bones of Crows. There's a little series out of Quebec called Porto Flora, and right. it beat out at um, Content London, which is one of the biggest drama events in the world. It won best series against, you know, Netflix, all the streamers, and the European broadcasters. So we're very proud of our content. We've got a great doc called Black Ice of hockey, like, in the 1800s, I think it was, don't quote me on that, but a, yeah. an incredible group of hockey players out in Eastern Canada, women talking, of course, with Canada's favorite director, uh, which got nominated for the Oscar, and The Last of Us, a massive, the biggest series. I'm not sure if it's North America, but it is huge, which was shot in Alberta. Like Canada, in terms of our content, there is no problem. And whether it's you know, whether we're working with our Canadian broadcasters or our streaming services, these are all shows of this campaign focuses on how terrific we all are together. I mean, it's called Made Better. Tusa say new. And it's, you know, on social media, there's hashtags. So we're celebrating it all. So that's kind of where it came from is claiming our talent and celebrating it with the world. Yeah, it feels like the last little while, thanks to thanks to streaming and all the demand for content, has been a real boon for Canadian uh, for Canadian directors, actors, writers, you name it, uh, because there's there's platforms to be noticed in, and they get noticed, which is which is heartening. Well, that's the great thing about partnering with with the streaming services. I mean, there are downsides too, like there are to everything, but and we're working through that with legislation here in Canada. But you know, for example, on our Canadian broadcast system. This campaign was on the Super Bowl and 8 million Canadians saw it, which is phenomenal. I had people from all over the country calling me and saying, wow, this is amazing, you know, in terms of the uh, PSAs that were on the broadcast networks. And you're right. I mean, the fantastic thing about the streamers is they have worldwide distribution. So everybody starts to see it once it's on, you know, those major global global streaming services. When you look at, uh, I, there's others, there's more to this campaign. There's one that advertises some of our great directors. You just mentioned Sarah Pauly. Uh, this is sort of a multifaceted campaign as well to call attention to some of the things that Canadians are good at, uh, amongst many, many things, by the way. Right, right. Yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, there are clips on all of the Canadian networks right now focusing on, you know, made better, made funny, made serious, made dramatic. And they they feature clips in both language markets, French and English, from all of the content that we celebrate in Canada. So, you know, we've got our great talent. There's a lot of uh, Canada's stars. Deepa Mehta, of course, one of Canada's most predominant filmmakers, Emily Hampshire with Schitt's Creek, mm -hmm. Marc-Andre Grandon from Crazy. And you know what, Ben? The campaign was trending on Apple News globally yesterday. So we're very proud of that. Yeah. And again, it's really hard to cut through the door. I mean, people may not have been there, but, you know, when you're in L.A., there's a lot going on. It's hard to get people to pay attention to what you're up to. Absolutely. All the, you know, we're leading into Oscars. And so massive billboard campaigns on For Your Consideration. So we just thought, well, we're not going to go down that road because as you're rightly, as you so rightly say, you can't cut through the noise. So we thought if we were a little bolder and had the four red chairs with the names of the four directors who are nominated in this Oscar campaign right under the Hollywood sign. And of course, it says, need direction? Look north. And the other one, as I said, is politely kicking ass. Sorry. So those kinds of cheeky approaches, I think, uh, catch people's attention, even briefly. And the buzz is certainly happening.
What's the uh, what's the end goal here? Is it just to raise awareness? The end goal is to raise awareness and appreciation. And I think part of the end goal is to bring our Canadian sector together. We've got over 30 partners, industry partners from the streamers to the broadcasters to Canadian talent in this. Telefilm and the CMF did this together. And this is a little bit of a little bit outside Telefilm's comfort zone. And so we're really happy with both their financial support and the guts, you know, that they jumped in with us and took a risk because I think it's going to pay off for all of us. So I think it's about awareness. It's also about, you know, appreciation of the impact of Canadian talent in Hollywood, whether they're residing there or whether they're still working in Canada and working for the foreign streaming companies or whether they're working in Canada on the broadcast networks like Porto Florois that won in Content London. It was a series shot in Quebec. You know, it wasn't part of the big streaming service. So I think it's a celebration of all types of content, who makes it in Canada, who finances it, who distributes it, and the impact that this sector has on the on the global economy in Canada, which is, you know, we contribute $12 million to Canada's GDP. So I think it's an awareness on many different fronts of just the success of our Canadian storytellers and our content and what we take to the world in terms of recognition. Yeah, you're, you're, as I was saying, you're you're casting a spotlight on some on some talent, Canadian talent that maybe a lot of Canadians might not know just yet. Absolutely, new directing talent, Dominique Shi, in terms of the the great film called Red, which focuses on Asian community that's in Toronto. Toronto's right and center. It's it's not a Canadian owned property, but it's certainly shot in Canada. Many elements are Canadian, and she had won a previous Oscar for her short. And also the talent behind the camera are incredible crews in this country that are also nominated for Oscars on a regular basis, whether it's costume design or the technology or art direction. I mean, it's creativity is not the problem in Canada from all, no matter what aspect you consider it from. Our structures are a bit dated, especially us at the CMF and the way we get things financed. We're hoping the new legislation will change that so that we can take campaigns like this even further. But this really is about a celebration of all of our content, no matter who makes it, where it's made, who finances it. But it just demonstrates the strength of our industry when we all work together. Yeah, legislation. You're talking about Bill C-11, I gather, which you wouldn't put on a billboard, right? But it's still important. God, no, we would not put it on a billboard, but it is very important. It'll be the key that will unlock the older financial structures in our country to give us a farther reach, more flexibility and more potential for great export of the wonderful content that's made here, as well as, you know, continuing to provide content on, on local domestic audiences through our broadcast sectors. Well, the Oscars are in less than a month, and already Canada's taken Hollywood by storm. So, <laughs> Valerie, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time, and thanks for thanks for interviewing us.